Okay, Parshas by Midbar. Let's give a little bit of an overview, and then we'll go through a bunch of points, a bunch of poppers on the, on the Parsha. So as an overview, the Parsha begins. Klaishol's in the Midbar. It gives the date, the time, the location. And Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu <coughs> to count the Jews from 20 and up, and they end up getting the number 603,550, the exact same number that they got in their earlier count at the beginning of that year. Hashem then tells Moshe Rabbeinu did not count Levi. Levi is a separate story. They're going to be dedicated to the service of the Mishkan. The next big piece of the parasha speaks about how they encamped around the Mishkan and the flags. They all had Degolim, special flags, each one per shavit, and how they were situated around the Mishkan. <coughs> Following that, we speak about the actual count of the Levium and that they were counted from 30 days and up, from little babies and up and what their jobs were. We go through every single family within Shevet Levi, what their jobs were in the Mishkan. Then there's a whole paragraph at the end of the parasha speaking about the coverings of the Kalim when they traveled, the cover of the Kalim, and then the Masa of Elazar, Hakoyin, which was a massive supernatural load that he was able to carry a whole year's worth of spices, flour, and oil. So that's the parasha, pretty much about seven or eight subjects. Let's begin now from the beginning. The Ramban gives an opening line to this parasha, which sounds a little depressing. I mention it every single year. And he says, this entire Sefer by Midbar does not contain one mitzvah that applies nowadays. The entire Sefer by Midbar is temporary mitzvahs for while the Jews were in the Midbar, how to take care of the Mishkan, all the different mishmaros, the holiness of the Mishkan. Pretty much the entire Sefer Devarim is temporary but 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 we have to realize that Bamidbar was also <clears throat> the formative years of Klaizra look back in world history how many years were we in Eretz Yisrael <clears throat> and how many years have we been traveling in the Midbar we're still traveling in the Midbar thousands of years so as much as the instructions in the Midbar seemed temporary it perhaps carries the biggest message for us how we are supposed to travel through the thousands of years of Gullus. And if we could put all of the mitzvahs of Sefer Ben Midbar together, we come out with one very, very big insight. There's about 50 mitzvahs in Sefer Ben Midbar. All of them are about how to treat the Beis HaMikdash and the Karbanas. And that's the message that it's not just the Beis HaMikdash, it's our shuls and it's our Batei Medrash. We have to treat it with kedusha, with holiness, with respect, with honor. That's what uh, perhaps the message is. For the thousands of years, the Shekhinah is with us, just like it was with us in the Mishkan. The Shekhinah is with us in our shuls. The Shekhinah is with us in our Bate Medrash, and it requires a certain anaga. I remember the lesson that I got of a lifetime. I was a teenager in Artisuel, and I went into some like hole-in-the-wall small Sephardi shul to grab a mincha. It was late, and it was almost shkia. I come in there, and they're all sitting around on benches. And I'm saying, I don't know what they're saying. I guess Karbanis, like, look at that. They're all, like, chanting stuff. And I'm like, what, what's there to chant already? It's before Milcha, it's just Ashray. But they're all chanting stuff, and I'm sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. And uh, I'm waiting. And this is how I'm waiting. I have a sitter in front of me. There's no tables. And I, my legs are crossed. And this old Friday guy who did not speak Hebrew or English comes up to me and starts screaming to me in his language. I don't know what language it was. He's screaming at me. I don't know what he wants in my life. Oh, and he's screaming at me. 
And finally, he slaps me and he knocks my foot off my other foot. And he's like, this is how you sit in a base of Andrews? And it was, a, it was a very beautiful lesson for me. Such a respect, such a regard to have. You have these Sephardim that are barely, barely Shomer Torah Mitzvahs. You know, Syrians, that they don't wear, they don't wear yarmulke all week. This and that. Shabbat, they come to shul. Kippah. They, they wouldn't sit, sit a second in the shul without a kippah. Kippah, oh, you going to Beit Knesset? There's a story, but I'm not going to go into it. I should go into it. <laughs> There's a story about a Jew who got, whose life got saved um, at the beginning of the Holocaust because he was blind. He was extremely, extremely, um, almost, almost totally blind. He was legally blind. And he used to go and set up the shul every single morning with like some coffee and cake. He'd open shop in the morning. He had a bike. Open shop in the way. I forgot which city this was in. And that was his thing. He'd be the first one in, last one out. And he could barely, barely see. But he had a minig from his father, from his forefathers, that when you open up the heichal, when you open up the, the not the heichal, the, the doors to the base knesses, and you felt straight ahead of you is the aron, straight ahead of the aron, they used to go and salute the aron. They would go like this, like wave towards the aron, and put their hand to the heart and kiss their hand. That's what they would do. Anyway, he had no idea that he the Germans came in to the synagogue. I don't know why he came late that day. It was like a shkachapatis, whatever it is. But the Germans came in and he walked into the synagogue and they were going to kill him. But as soon as he walked in, his minig was and just as he was doing it, they were doing a salute to Hitler. Oh. And they thought that he was a disguised, you know, SS man or whatever it is, and they let him go. But I thought they saluted like this. What? No, they went like Whatever, how they did it. Don't do it, When I read the story, I saw his name in it also. But anyway, the bottom line is, if there's a message that the entire Sefer Devarim carries for us throughout Gullus, is that even though we're is that even though we're in Gullus, God is with us, and He's with us in our shuls, in our Bate Medrash, and how they have to be treated. Two years ago, we spoke about parts of the Midbar, and it was the Shabbos, it was for Shavuos, and it was the week that shuls got reopened. We were allowed to have Minyanim. We spoke about appreciating the fact that we were able to come back. Okay, so that's Ramban's Akdama. Let's go. The first Pasik says that Baruch who spoke to Moshe Abenu at this time and this place. Su'u, Pasik Bez, that's right. I'll call out Asmani Israel. Mr. Kaisal Face of Asam and Ms. Mashemais called Zachar Legulgalaisam. Every single male Legulgal. What's a Gulgal? Skulls around. Oh. Says Abinu Bakaye. Because Baruch revealed to Moshe Rabbeinu at the time every single Jew's future Gilgulim. And he was taking them into account as well. There's a lot of Gilgulim that everybody has. Okay, I'm not sure why he needed that, but uh, that was part of the count. Okay, next Basik, Basik Gimel. 20 and up, all those <coughs> that could go into the army. What's, why 20 and up? Why do we count the Jews 20 and up? America, 18, you're an adult. Uh-huh. By Bezdin at 13, 13, you're an adult, you're by mitzvah. Why, why 20 and up? We're going to see that the Levium were counted when they were babies, just 30 days old. What's 20? What's 20? The Noach Weinberg says 20 is the age that you are fully responsible for everything you do. God doesn't have any more patience. At 20 is when Bezdin Shel Shamayim holds you accountable. At 13, if a guy does kill Shabbos, Bezdin will kill him. But God won't kill him. 
until he's 20. In other words, God has like a little bit of time for a guy to figure himself out till he is 20. You know, God understands teenage, puberty, adolescence. Okay. But at 20 is when you are 100% absolute, fully accountable. And when you are accountable, we could count on you. That's when you count. And that's also why it's called, you would say, Tzava, Israel. Those are the people that could go and fight in the army. <laughs> um, these are the people that hopefully will not have to be fearful of sin when they go fight in the front lines because they're fully responsible. They know there's, there's, no, there's no way out. Another thing, says, we all understand that to mean we would count whoever was fit to join the army. What happens if you had a guy who was paralyzed, limp, <coughs> deaf, blind, I don't know, you name it, a guy who was not courageous, they're not fit for the army. Do they get counted? Says the Rachaim HaKadosh, Kol should really be read almost like with a camel. Kol, all of them were Yotzei Tzava. All 603,550 people that were above the age of 20 were fit and capable. We know that by Maimon Sinai, every single Jew got healed. Blind were able to see, the deaf were able to hear. Everyone got healed from whatever physical ailments they had. It was Tchias Amazim. Their bodies were, were resurrected. So says the Arachayim, Kol they all were able to go out in the army. Okay, Perik Aleph Pasik Memhe. We start going through all the numbers, all the counts, and there's an unbelievable Ramban. Moshe <clears throat> Rabbeinu would go from tent to tent, together with the Nasi of each Shevet, and get an accounting of every single family. Who's your father? Who's your grandfather? A whole family tree. This was like a, this was a big deal. It didn't take, uh, you know, uh, two minutes. He would go from tent to tent, get an exact number, family. Not only that, the people would come out and greet him. He says, Rabban, why'd they have to do it this way? It's like a hard way to do things. I don't know, like, let everyone throw in a ticket with their name or, you know, just do a census. Every parent just fill out how many kids they have or whatever it is, you know, how many adults are turning it up. Why do you have to go? I'll read Rabban's line. Ki Someone who stands before Moshe Rabbeinu and his brother Aaron, and he identifies himself to them by name. That in itself, being known to a tzaddik by name, he actually knows you. Like first name basis, you you shouldn't call him by his name. You don't call him by his first name. But when a tzaddik knows you by name, that connection is enough to grant you life. We know that counting causes plague and death. Okay, they gave them access to shekel, that would prevent it. But this was another way to prevent plague due to counting. By identifying yourself to a tzaddik. A lot of times I ask a boy on, on an interview with Shuldi Adaminen, and I say, does the Rav know you? I asked you this question at the beginning of the week. He just moved. He's joining a new shul. Does the Rav know you? You got to connect with the Rav, the the rabbi, the Tamil Chacham, the Tzaddik. Huh? You didn't ask me that. I didn't. I guess you said my rabbi. I did. Yes, yes. You didn't ask me. He told me yes. The knows you. Yeah. You didn't ask me. Yeah. I actually called him without you. You didn't ask me. But anyway. (laughs) Huh? I didn't, even take an I didn't meet you, yes. <laughs> okay, but anyway, you see, this is a very important thing. To have a tzaddik, a talmud chacham, somebody, a great man, know who you are, that's a tremendous thing. 
It creates a connection. Okay, this is a chizkuni. Perik Aleph, Pasuk Mem Tes. Don't count Levi together with the rest of the Jews. Why not? Two reasons. We have a rule. Things could be mitzdarif. You know, you have a bunch of things. You have a, you know, a few plates of kugel, rice. All together, we have a certain amount of dishes. Let's say you have a, a cookie and you have a cake. It's a gazayas. You make an almechia. But the rule is things that have different shiurim, you can't bring them together to complete one shir. So let's say drinks and food, they don't come together once a year. Things with different brachas. So he says, since Shevet Levi was counted from when they were babies, and the rest of Kleiser was counted from 20, you can't have them in one count. They don't, oh. They're not mitzdarif. But a second reason he says is beautiful. So the reason why we don't count Shevet Levi with the rest of Kleiser, it's almost like the Israelis tied with the army nowadays. Oh, the yeshiva guys, Haredim, they don't join the army. We join the army. We're intelligence. Oh. No, we, we do intelligence. We oh. learn Torah. <laughs> 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 the intelligence part, no? We do intelligence. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> if, a guy, if a guy was in the army and his job was to check, you know, the radar screens, to pick up uh, enemy planes or missiles, whatever, to check the skies. And he decides one day to change, you know, and he moves over, to take a different position. Or somebody in the police force. A guy, you just decide to get up and change your position, your job, you're in trouble. Big trouble. Everybody's got their job. So Klai Yisrael's job was to go out and fight war. Shevet Levi's job was stay home, check the computers, cybersecurity. Do Avod Hashem, Torah. And that's the same thing with us. We provide the spiritual, the spiritual missiles, the spiritual protection that the army needs when they go out to fight the war. We're also part of the army. And you know something? We should take it as seriously as the rest of the army does. We spoke about this by Yitzhiz Mitzrayim in Egypt. It says, Shevet Levi didn't work. But all of Klai Yisrael had to work. It says, Shevet Levi worked. Bechoymer Ublaveyim, Bechalva Chaymer, and Bebinyanah, because of Echad, darshaning the words of Torah, was a toil and an effort and a burden for them. They took it just as seriously as the Jews working physically out in the fields. Zoyar Parshas Shemites. Okay, so we got to take our job seriously. Shevet Levi has a different job than the rest of Klaizol, and therefore they're counted separately. There's a Ramami Panu. Listen to this, guys. Perik Aleph, Pasuk Memtes. You just said that one? No, one one. One please. Pasuk says when it speaks about the Machanais. Here we go. Pasuk Nun Aleph, I'm sorry. Take a look at this Pasuk because you got to see this one inside. Perik Aleph, Pasuk Nun Aleph. Uben Soya HaMishkan, Yoridu Oisei HaLavim. When the Mishkan would start traveling, so the Levim would take everything down. Uben HaMishkan, and when the Shechina would rest, Yerkimo HaLavim, they would set up the Mishkan. Vahazar HaKarev Yumas. And if a stranger would approach to do a lady's job, Aaron HaKain? Yeah. If a lady would approach to do a Kayin's job, or if a Kayin would do the lady's job, or if an outsider or a czar would do any of their jobs, they would drop dead. Look at the last word of this Pasuk, Yumas. The second to last word, Hakarif. Third to last word, Vahazar. Fourth to last word, Salavim. The Rosh is spelled Yudke Vavke backwards. But it does it again. Keep on going. Yakimu, go backwards, Hamishkan, Ubachanois, Halavim. No, two you skip times. 
Two, I know, but two times in the same Pasuk. Two times in the same Pasuk. The Rashi Tevis spelled Yudke Vavke backwards. Where else do we have Yudke Vavke backwards? There was a guy named Haman. An and Haman said, The Cholze, a Nanu Shove Li. When I see Mordechai sitting over there, all of my wealth and glory is worth nothing to me. The Cholze, a Nanu Shove Li, is the Sofe Tevis backwards, Yudke Vavke. Oh. Says the Ramami Panu, a great tremendous Rishon and Makubun, that when Hashem's name is written backwards, it's Midas Haddin. And that's why this Pasik is stressing two times that someone who changes their jobs, a terrible, terrible Midas Haddin will be shaylen, and they will die. You know, is coming. Some people have a job to stay up all night and learn. And maybe, they, maybe they go to sleep. Some people, they can't act it. So they should go to sleep. <laughs> they should go to sleep. And they should be up this afternoon to learn. Yeah. Everybody's got their job to show recognition, love, and appreciation for the Torah. Do your job. Yeah. It was a, a Malabas, a very wealthy, a very wealthy Malabas who told her small beer, man, sick and tired of working and doing business. I've tasted the sweetness of Torah. I want to go to Kailo. He's a big, tremendous millionaire. And and small beer man told him no. He said your your job is to support the Moisley Satira. And okay, of course you do that you whatever is that you're learning. But to drop to drop your 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 mission in life and go and sit alone, that's not your mission. Do you know who know who Rabbi Small Man told us to? You Rabbi Zakim's father. Yeah, Rabbi Zakim's father. Oh yeah. Huh? Seven second Okay, so that's why there's a tremendous Midas Adin on switching missions. Everybody's got their own mission. And the Midas Adin, by the way, is not like a bad guy up in heaven. It's God. It's just that Midas Adin is when like God's demanding perfection. It's like a Rebbe has rights to like really beat up on you if you show up even two seconds late. It's just usually he lets it slide. But here and there, a Rebbe can come in and say, today we're demanding perfection. And sometimes Hashem does that. We don't like it when Hashem does that because it becomes a little bit difficult. But there are ways to change it back to Midas Arachna. On Rosh Hashanah, we blow the shofar. We bring up the schus of Akedas Yitzchak. It brings up Midas Arachna. It says somebody that learns Torah in depth is Ma'ur Midas Arachna. There was a great Rebbe that when they were preparing for Tekiah Shofar before Musaf on Rosh Hashanah, the rabbi used to go into his private room, and then he would come back and say, okay, we're ready to blow Shafer. Nobody knew what he did in his private room. And one time, all the chassidim are waiting for the rabbi to come out of the room, and he ain't coming out. And he's there for like a half an hour, 40 minutes. Finally, the guy went, and he knocked on the door, and he walked in, and he sees the rabbi was all caught up in learning Ketzeis, one of the very, very deep commentaries of Shulchan Aruch. And he asked the rabbi, what on earth are you doing? You're learning Ketzeis here, <laughs> between Shachas and Musaf and Rosh Hashanah. And he says, this has the power to change me, this identity, Mr. Rachman. I just got caught up in it. He didn't realize what time it is. Okay. The Degalim. It says that Klaisol saw by Matan Torah. The angels coming down from heavens. Millions and millions and millions. Avram. Millions of Aden, of, of angels coming down from heaven. And they all came in groups. And they all came also with Degalim with some kind of associated flag that they all belong to. 
And Kleisel were jealous. Kleisel said, we also want that. So we see from here that it's important to have a sense of belonging. We see nowadays with uh, all the social media craze, people need a sense of belonging to something. And it's sad when they don't. Judaism. Batman. Exactly. You know. What flag do you carry? Kleisel, Kleisel, yes, for the Degolim. Every single Degel carried a different, a different Kabbalistic message. It also had a different color, a different animal, or something else that represented that Shevet. And we see from there also, similar to the 12 Shvatim that went through Kriya Siyams of the 12 different channels, that within keeping Tayyar and Mitzvah, there's a lot of room for different types of culture and flavor and focus within the Tayyar Mitzvah. Ruvain encamped uh, Taimana towards the Mishkan. And later on we say that Ruvain, because of this, ended up getting caught up to the Adas Kairach, causing 250 people of his to fall to their deaths. What, what, what was wrong? You're next to a Russia, you get affected. What's called next to? You know how far Ruvain actually was from Korach? Korach was from the family of Kahas. Okay? And Korach was the greatest guy from that family. See, he's pretty much up front next to the Mishkan. Each encampment was pretty large. To going from Shevet Levi till Ruvain was, I don't know, about a mile or so. I don't think Korach even met the guys by Sheva Ruvain until finally he got them to join him. And yet we see from here, bottom line is, what you're close to has an effect on you, even if you're not that close. And the same thing the other way around. You're close to a tzaddik, we say, it's also very, very good for you. Okay. Kaddish um, Baruch says, I have taken the Levian. Pair Gimel, Pasuk Yud Beis. Hashem says, I'm taking the Levian for myself. Rashi says, um, how am I taking the Levian? Pair Gimel, Pasuk Yud Beis. I have taken the Levim from amongst the Jews instead of the Bechayrim. I have the Levim. Rashi says a strange Lashim. How was I Zoka to get the Levim? Oh, because the Bechayrim, I saved them and they're taking over the Bechayrim. How is Hashem Zoka to Levim? I mean, isn't God boss? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Everything's his. How, how do I got the Levim? Oh, I got the Levim because I saved the Bukharium and the Bukharium failed by the eagle, so I got the Levim instead. What? God needs an excuse? Does your parent need an excuse to take a dollar away from you? Yes. Yes. No. I'm like, yes. 14 now. 14. Makes a difference. If you rely on your parents for your sustenance, for your clothing, for your food, for your education, for your room and board, for your rent, for your electricity, everything you own, Everything you own is, is owned by your parents. Exactly. A parent could take anything they want away at any given moment. But we learn a lesson from here. We learn a lesson. We have a rule that says, Melech Pirates Geder. A king has a right to just break through people's private property and make a road because he's got to get to somewhere quickly. He has a right to do that. But you don't do that. He has a right. But that's not, Hashem is teaching us. That even if a parent 
feels, let's say a parent feels a need, I don't know, let's say they're down and out, they, they need 20 bucks, whatever it is, whatever the reason is. And they want to take $20 from you. You want to tour anytime. What? You want to tour anytime. I know. So when you go and the parents want to do something, they tell you they should have some kind of limit source. And Hashem has to give a reason how he's taking Shevet Levi and why he's taking Shevet Levi. Um, one last thing, it says Shevet Levi is counted from one month and above. Yes. Strangely enough, the first person in Shevet Levi was counted even when they were in the mother's womb. Anyone? What? Huh? No, in the mother's womb. What? Oh, when he went to Levi's daughter. Levi's daughter. Yechevet was born on the way to Mitzrayim. Yeah. She was counted as number 70. So Rashi says, Shevet Levi is used to being counted from a very young age. And so from 30 days old, we can count a Levi. But Rashi says an amazing thing. That from 30 days old, they are roi lemeshmeres. They're already up. They're up to task. Now, of course, they can barely walk. They're obviously not up to task. But, but I believe what he's telling you is that when you have a Shevet or even a family, that the whole message, the whole mission of that family is dedicated to the service of Hashem. That's what they are. You have these chassidim, the Rebbes, from the, the day the Rebbe's born, he's being groomed into being the next Rebbe. That kid bears a tremendous amount on his shoulders from day one. And I think what it's teaching us is an important lesson. You mature quickly. People that take upon themselves the responsibility of living a complete life dedicated to Hashem, it's what we call like a ben zekunim, zesha kanachachmo. Even when you're young, you're considered male yashan. You're considered containing a lot of experience and age and maturity within you. And I think we'll have to stop over here. Thank you.